Well, greetings once again, dear listeners, <clears throat> and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. <clears throat> I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. Today's date, August 11, 2013. In our last Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 19, we ended that discussion of legal tender U.S. notes or Lincoln Greenbacks by quoting from President Abraham Lincoln's address to Congress in December of 1862, in which he proposed an alternative national bank currency to his own federally issued United States notes. Being as how those U.S. notes are highly esteemed among many of today's Federal Reserve critics, we're compelled to ask why honest Abe Lincoln lacked the same level of confidence in his own notes that inspires populists at American Free Press today. Why would he champion private banknotes over those issued by Congress? Well, before answering this question, I'm constrained to say that Abraham Lincoln never struck me as having a background in economics, banking, and finance, or that he would have envisioned and proposed such a sweeping piece of national banking legislation on his own. Its authors were lurking in the background and well-connected to Wall Street. This was not a banking reform proposal from the log cabin school of economics. An advocate of a national banking system was close by, however, in the personage of Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury, although he did not possess a background in banking and finance either. Despite these modest shortcomings, the proposed national bank system, which was established in February of 1863, according to my encyclopedia, is generally considered his, Chase, greatest achievement. For a lawyer turned politician, that's a rather curious accomplishment, don't you think? Getting back to President Lincoln, we can surmise that he was influenced by his own Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Chase, on behalf of a national banking system. But why didn't either of these men prefer United States notes that originated with their own administration? It would, after all, be a fine feather in their cap. Well, first, greenbacks were issued in violation of the Constitution, and almost everyone in Congress knew that. Second, no provision had been made for their redemption in lawful money, gold and silver coin of the United States, despite the fact that every greenback carried on its face an express promise to pay, which was prima facie evidence that they were not money. Third, there were those in Washington who wanted to build closer ties with the world of banking in order to finance whatever programs and projects might arise during other national emergencies equal to or even greater than the Civil War. Fourth, a system of national banks to issue paper currency of a uniform and relatively stable value would, like so much adrenaline, give the economy an extra boost of energy, until the debts came due at least. And fifth, a national banking system would help the friends of paper money in Washington and our nation's financial districts to circumvent the Constitution and its thorny prohibitions against government-issued bills of credit. 
much like a team of engineers striving to overcome problems of a scientific nature, social engineers focus their energies on how to surmount the obstacles imposed by natural law, such as the limited supply of gold and silver needed to satisfy the incredible appetite for money created by a war. To these engineering wizards, the Constitution is just another challenge to be conquered, like so much weight and drag for the aeronautical engineer in pursuit of a faster airplane. It doesn't occur to them or to populace that the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution, or even God himself, had any reason whatsoever for prohibiting such a system of legalized theft. Now, listeners to our last message will recall President Lincoln's primary concern was for a national currency of sufficient volume to meet the public's wants, while Congress somehow regulated its purchasing power to minimize the anticipated fluctuations in value to which paper currency had always suffered previously. Does this sound vaguely familiar? It should, because that's the same rationale given by big city bankers to Congress for creating the Federal Reserve System in 1913 and which populists today offer to correct its deficiencies by giving this criminal confidence game to Congress. Hmm. What the public fails to remember, or never knew in the first place, was that the bank panic of 1907, which served to justify central bank legislation in the form of the Federal Reserve Act, occurred under the National Banking Act, which honest Abe Lincoln told Congress would safely prevent these fluctuations in the value of paper currency. The Panic of 1907 was an example of the national banking system's failure to correct the sins inherent to banking. The National Bank Act had, as its manifold justification, the Bank Panic of 1720 in France and England, and which was experienced here as the Mississippi Bubble precipitated by Scotland's John Law. This was followed by the bank panics of 1819, 1837, and 1857. Only five years after the panic of 1857 began, with effects still being felt in 1860, we find President Lincoln proposing a national banking system to cure the effects of a problem we still refuse to look square in the face. That problem is called banking and bank credit. We've been down this road again and again because we just can't get enough of that fiscal heroin that makes us feel so good that we need to get out of the house and go shopping. It's called bank credit. So if you want to avoid the insidious pitfalls of personal and national bankruptcy, stay away from banks. However, modern America's materialistic spendthrift, instant gratification, throwaway, and unsustainable lifestyle is propelled by bank credit. Check it out on the first day of the month at a Walmart trinket and bauble supercenter near you. Look at all the Chinese landfill that we lug home and then toss into the dumpster shortly thereafter. If the earth should ever develop a serious wobble in its rotation, it will be caused by all the Walmart junk that we're piling up on our side of the planet. And our luxuriating folly is to be regulated and taxed by Rockefeller's global palooza called Free Trade and the United Nations. But back to Lincoln, who sold his own greenback short 
by saying, quote, it is extremely doubtful whether a circulation of United States notes, payable in coin and sufficiently large for the wants of the people, can be permanently, usefully, and safely maintained. End quote. He was waffling in favor of national banknotes. So if you have any friends left in the populist camp, give them a heads up on Lincoln. Even he didn't believe in Lincoln greenbacks. And his own words to Congress are worth repeating. He said, quote, Is there, then, any other mode in which the necessary provision for the public wants can be made? and the great advantages of a safe and uniform currency secured. I know of none which promises so certain results and is, at the same time, so unobjectionable as the organization of banking associations under a general act of Congress, well guarded in its provisions. To such associations, the government might furnish circulating notes on the security of U.S. bonds deposited in the Treasury. So said Lincoln in December of 1862. So if you're enjoying a Walmart experience funded by gobs of intangible bank credit, you can thank Abe Lincoln for proposing an improved credit system to help you achieve economic nirvana. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. You're listening to Datum Line. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 20. If you're joining us at this juncture, 
and you are listening to Datum Line. You know, the, uh, the National Bank Act was introduced into Congress by Representative Spaulding of New York in the winter of 1861 to 1862 and was passed on February 25th, 1863, just one year after he submitted the legal tender bill to the House on January 22nd, 1862. Now, isn't that a coincidence? Here was a real visionary who, on the same day the New York Bank's suspended specie payment just happened to introduce the saving piece of legislation in the House of Representatives. What a blessing he was, Mr. S- Mr. Spaulding. This former banker from Buffalo, New York. Well, let's return to Contest for Sound Money by A. Barton Hepburn, published in 1903. And we're going to go to page 196. In today's broadcast, we're going to end Mr. Hepburn's observations concerning the legal tender debates that occurred in 1861-62 and the legal tender era of the Civil War, so-called. At least that's what I, being from the state of Maine, was taught to call it. I guess if I was from the South, I'd be taught to call it the War for Secession or something of that nature. Anyway, here's what Hepburn says on page 196. Quote, by June 30th, 1864, there were in round numbers about $650 million of legal tender notes of all kinds in existence. I'm going to stop there. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty good sum, believe it or not. You see, the, the federal government in the 19, in, not 1960, 1860, come on, Bruce, in 1860, uh, was running a budget uh, of around $60 million a year. And so now, uh, by the middle of 1864, there were about $650 million of legal tender notes of all kinds in existence. That meant that the federal government, on the first-time basis, had already acquired $650 million worth of goods and services, without paying for them, by the way, by using legal tender notes. That's what notes are all about. The purpose of a good note is to get what you produce now and pay you later. The purpose of a bad note is to get what you produce now and pay you never. Now, from December 1863, according to Hepburn, the premium on gold rose steadily until it reached 86, that was 86%, in May. In order to check speculation, Congress authorized the Secretary, that would be the Secretary of the Treasury, to sell coin accumulated in the Treasury beyond its needs. And on June 17, 1864, passed an act forbidding all sales of gold and foreign exchange on time contracts and prohibited brokers from selling gold anywhere except at their offices thereby hoping to break up the gold exchange. This resulted in a rise in the premium of gold to 185. The act, however, he says, was repealed on July 6, 1864. You catch that date? Here we have Wall Street-related business, as usual, adding more confusion to be dealt with by frustrating our myopic lawmakers in Washington. This law was repealed in less than three weeks. How's that for getting congressional attention? Well, Wall Street can do it. A lot easier than you and I. Salmon P. Chase resigned as Secretary of the Treasury 
around July 1st. Gold fluctuated on the exchange between 122 and 150, while Senator William P. Fessenden from Maine, as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, became Chase's successor. Turning to page 197 of Hepburn's book, Contest for Sound Money, he says, quote, In the Revenue Act of March 3, 1865, Congress laid such a tax upon state banknotes, what was that tax? 10%, as to practically prohibit their use, and they gradually disappeared. Bye-bye competition. You see, the national banking system was being created, and they decided that it was going to replace state banknotes. So how do you get rid of state banknotes? The federal government decided to impose a tax upon them. The tax was 10%, and that basically prohibited their use, and state banknotes gradually disappeared. Now, if you had been alive at that time, you might have wondered where those state banknotes were going and why. Well, that was why. And this was to be repeated. The same course of action would be repeated to eradicate national banknotes that circulated alongside Federal Reserve notes until 1935. You see, the Federal Reserve Bank system was created as part of that national banking system. So Federal Reserve banknotes, as they were originally called, denomination for denomination, looked just like other national banknotes, except for the fact that instead of saying the First National Bank of Tiffin, Ohio, or the Mechanics National Bank of Baltimore, would say the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, or the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. But Congress came along later on, after the Federal Reserve was created, imposed a tax on behalf of the Federal Reserve, and taxed out all of the other, and there were thousands of them, national banknotes. By 1935. Oh, the joys of lawmaking. You can make black white, and then you can turn it around, you can make white black if you want to. Okay, turning to page 198, again, contest for sound money, A. Barton Hepburn, he says, quote, Fessenden returned to the Senate and was, quote, succeeded March 4th, 1865, by Hugh McCullough, whose long experience with the State Bank of Indiana, and as the first comptroller of the currency under the national banking law, peculiarly fitted him for the great work, end quote. So says Hepburn, a banker. Now, do you suppose the revolving door was already being installed between big banks and Congress, or between big banks and the United States Treasury? Do you suppose that that revolving door was already being created back in the 1860s? Yeah, you're down tootin'. Hepburn then reviewed the portentous events crowded into the short space of four years. He said, quote, Chase was the guiding spirit of the fiscal affairs of the nation. Never before or since had a finance minister wielded such power as was placed in his hands. Quite a heady experience for a man who seemed to have no professional background in such affairs, wouldn't you think? According to Hepburn, the cost of the war averaged over $2 million a day for the entire period and at its peak called for nearly $3 million a day. On page 199, he says, quote, It is nevertheless true that the banks as a whole were unable to finance the extraordinary needs of the government, and it would have been unwise, for Mr. Chase at least, to rely upon them. 
end quote. Yet we're told that Secretary Chase developed a system of national banks that could supply all the imaginary money needed by government and the general public, which a parcel of unorganized banks somehow could not supply. How is this? Well, in a nutshell, organized crime is more efficient than unorganized crime in covering up bank fraud. Turning to page 200, Hepburn introduces us to a novel idea as to who should bear the brunt of financial decisions, including the Legal Tender Act, which violated the Constitution. Here's what he said, quote, It is deemed just, by whom he doesn't say, it is deemed just that a portion of extraordinary expenditure, whether incurred in war or for public utility or permanent improvement, decided by whom he does not say, be devolved upon, which means passed to, the succeeding generation, the next generation, which is profited, says who, thereby, by means of loans payable at a future date. Had Chase applied this principle in his demands from Congress in July 1861, it would have stood him in good stead, end quote. A. Barton Hepburn. That reminds me of a statement made by Thomas Jefferson. At least I believe he's the one who made it. It sounds very much like a statement by him, where he opined that one generation has no more right to saddle its debts upon the next generation than one nation has in passing its obligations on to another nation. Which of these two opposing views strikes you as more just and possibly even biblical? A. Barton Hepburn's or Thomas Jefferson's? Well, while you think on that for a moment, and some of you probably don't even have to think about it, oh, I hear music. Maybe we're going to have a break this time. I'm Bruce D. McCarthy, and you are listening to Datum Line. segment of Datum Line, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 20. On the other side of this last break, I had introduced the uh, novel idea of A. Barton Hepburn as to who should bear the brunt of financial decisions, such as the Legal Tender Act, uh, which uh, was passed by Congress and which violated the Constitution, and how Mr. Hepburn uh, a banker, you realize. He was the vice president of Chase National Bank at the time his book was written in 1903. He said that it was deemed just that a portion of extraordinary expenditures be passed on, he said, to the next generation, which he presumed was somehow profited by the uh, extraordinary expenditure. Well, I don't know how many of you feel as though you were blessed by the Legal Tender Act or by an unconstitutional war or by a federal government that emerged sovereign over the states and the people. I mean, that, that war between the states uh, accomplished a great deal, uh, far more than was ever taught in school. And 
But he says that uh, the next generation should have to pick up some of the tab. And I suggested that maybe that wasn't quite just, and that it was Thomas Jefferson. I know there are some of you out there who don't like Thomas Jefferson, but nevertheless, Thomas Jefferson had suggested that one generation has no more right to saddle its debts upon the next generation than one nation has in passing its obligations on to another, another nation. And I asked the question, which of these two opposing viewpoints strikes you as more just and possibly biblical, Mr. Hepburn's or Mr. Jefferson's? Well, there's a principle found in Scripture that says that the fathers shall not be put to death for the children. That means for the sins of the children that are worthy of death, that is. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16. This sounds a little bit more Jeffersonian, don't you think? Uh, Anyway, you can think on that. Again, quoting Hepburn on page 202, quote, fully appreciating the danger of a redundant issue of government notes, Mr. Chase said, endeavored to limit the volume. But conditions forced him to issue more and more in the face of depreciation. Okay, so Mr. Chase appreciated the danger of a redundant issue of government notes, and he endeavored, he strove to limit the volume, but conditions forced him to issue more and more in the face of depreciation. Well, we call that depreciation inflation. So you see, inflation, which is a natural consequence of paper currency, aggravated the appetite for even more paper currency so that the government could acquire those necessary goods and services for the war, those goods and services that were rising in price. Why were they rising in price? Because of inflation. And what was causing the inflation? Well, the funny money that they were creating was causing it. Isn't it marvelous how breaking the law, whether you want to call it the law of God concerning theft, usury, and so forth, how breaking the law, or breaking the law called the Constitution, which prohibited this paper money. Isn't it marvelous how breaking the law creates the conditions which then force us to violate the law even more? Quoting Hepburn, quote, He, Chase, did so, doubting their legality. See, even the Secretary of the Treasury doubted the legality of what he was doing. And we're going to prove that in just a moment. And hoping and believing that the national bank circulation, when created would take their place and admit of their retirement. Now, as we create the national banking system, then we'll use the national bank notes to replace the United States notes, and I can breathe a sigh of relief. Even though I violated the Constitution as the Secretary of the Treasury, we can get out from underneath that by replacing United States notes with national currency notes, national bank notes. Okay? See? Since private banks were not subject to the Constitution's prohibitions against paper currency, national banknotes were seen as a way to skirt the Constitution to which Secretary Chase, Congress, and President Lincoln were bound by oath. Thus, another false paradigm was seemingly forced upon public officials who submitted to yet another Hegelian dialectic. In other words, America was going to have a paper currency one way or another. 
It was either going to be issued by Congress or by private banks. Gosh, I can hear that chicken in that claymation cartoon called Chicken Run. Are those the only two choices? Well, going on and quoting Hepburn, quote, In a formal communication to Congress, he, this is Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, in a formal communication to Congress, he later condemned his own policy in issuing so many notes in lieu of imposing greater taxation. Now get a load of this. As Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, see, he was appointed Chief Justice by Lincoln, he pronounced the legal tender notes he had issued as the former Secretary of the Treasury. Unconstitutional, a most unique commentary upon his own administration and one that is surely without parallel, says A. Barton Hepburn. Let's move on now to page 202 and 203. Quoting Hepburn again, quote, The chain of causes and effects, says Hepburn, may be recapitulated as follows. Utter failure to foresee the probable length and magnitude of the war. That was one problem, evidently. Kind of reminds you of the war in the Middle East, doesn't it? Remember Dick Cheney saying it was only going to be a six-week event? Okay. Uh, utter failure to foresee the probable length and magnitude of the war. Hence, failure to provide largely increased taxation. Always unpalatable to short-sighted legislators. First resort to no issues rendered necessary by the absence of a reputable currency system and of credit abroad, through which specie could be drawn. The vain desire not to sell bonds at a discount. Oh, dear. And consequently, inability to sell them as rapidly as needs arose. Wretched military administration and waste. Well, we've never seen that, have we? In innumerable ways. Suspension of coin payments precipitated by unwise management and foreign complications. Forced legal tender currency, loans, and expansion of prices. Checking commodity exports and increasing expenses. Heavy exports of specie naturally following. More legal tender currency with further rise in prices and increase in expenses. Repudiation of right to fund legal tender notes into bonds. Wild speculation in specie, which extended into all lines of business, enriching the shrewd few at the expense of the many. Net result, says Hepburn, ultimate cost to the people very much more than it would have been had they been taxed more heavily at the outset. He went on to say, had a great national bank, gosh, wouldn't he suggest that now, had a great national bank or a system of national banks existed and had a proper scheme of taxation been adopted, the same result would have been accomplished at far less cost, end quote. Do you detect any bias? Are you surprised, for instance, that this vice president of Chase National Bank believed in a national bank system? first proposed to Congress by Secretary Chase, a system that failed to avert the bank panic of 1907, which occurred only four years after Hepburn's book, Contest for Sound Money, was published. You recall that it was the bank panic of 1907 which justified creating a new and improved credit system in 1913, this time called the Federal Reserve. 
to bring even more stability, they said, to the sinful world of intangible bank credit. And that Congress, once again, argued on behalf of the Hegelian dialectic in which the only option out of four choices, see, Congress had plenty of choices as to what kind of a central bank they were going to have, but it was going to be some kind of a central bank. And that's exactly what we got, a central bank. How could Congress possibly miss the right answer when every answer was to create a central bank? Selecting the best out of four, the institution they created then stole our gold only 20 years later in 1934. They stole our silver 31 years after that in 1965 and is now taking us to the brink of national extinction. The next major economic debate in the world of Hegelian dialectics will most likely be about the need for Congress to nationalize the Federal Reserve System pursuant to the Communist Manifesto's fifth blank as proposed by Moses Mordecai Levy, alias Karl Marx, in 1848. Here's our music. This is our next break. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you are listening to Data Line. segment of Datum Line, uh, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 20. Gosh, we've been on this subject of legal tender notes, particularly the debates in Congress for so long, I guess we might even have to remind our listeners why it is that this is an economic myth. What was so mythological about United States notes? Well, for one thing, there are people in the populist a camp who believed that Abraham Lincoln was extremely supportive of Lincoln <laughs> Greenbacks. They bore his name, right? Uh, but even he didn't believe in Lincoln Greenbacks, and he told Congress as much. Uh, there were those who today believe that uh, Lincoln Greenbacks were constitutionally issued. Uh, they were not constitutionally issued. Of course, we've spent time looking at the original debates in the uh, Constitutional Convention of 1787. And for those of you who have been following this series and the two previous economic series, uh, you know for a fact that it was a 9-2 to two vote by the delegates uh, at the Constitutional Convention to prohibit all legal tender, not only uh, with the states, but they also struck from the Constitution at Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 5, a power that would have been there had it not be struck from the constitutional draft. And that was the power to emit bills. <clears throat> and the words, and emit bills, were stricken out by a vote of 9 to 2. Uh, the federal government was prohibited from emitting bills of credit. Uh, the Tenth Amendment tells you why. Those powers not expressly delegated are reserved to the states or the people. But the states were prohibited from doing it, and there is no express power for the federal government to do it. It's amazing how many people do not understand how the Constitution was written in terms of a document of express or conferred delegated powers. Okay, uh, But 
such are the folks at American Free Press and uh, American Monetary Institute and elsewhere who insist that Congress really intended to give us a paper money system. Uh, well, it's absolute theft, 100% theft in favor of the issuer. Anyway, on the previous side of our last break, I, I had brought up again the Communist Manifesto <clears throat> and how the next major economic debate in the world of what I call Hegelian dialectics is likely to be about the need for Congress to nationalize the Federal Reserve System, which is what the populists want to do. But this is pursuant to the Communist Manifesto, and I keep bringing this up uh, because I want to show you the close proximity of events in history, because the Communist Manifesto was written in 1848, and the fifth plank proposes centralization of credit in the hands of the state, that's the federal government in our country, you see, not the state of Maine, okay? Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank, state capital, and exclusive monopoly. That's exactly what the populists want. That was proposed in the Communist Manifesto in 1848. That was only 13 years before the legal tender debate of 1861, which we've been covering as part of this series. Now, if Mr. Levy... <clears throat> gets his way, or Karl Marx, if you prefer to use his alias, and I suspect he will get his way, you'll be able to thank a populist at American Free Press, American Monetary Institute, or maybe the Pilgrims of St. Michael for that. Folks like Bill Still, Ellen Brown, Steve Zarlinga, Mark Anderson, Christopher Petherick, and their hopeless predecessors like Mr. Thorne and Mr. Warner, who we reviewed in the Truth and Money book. We spent quite a bit of time on that. Dr. Charles Norburn, who wrote a book called Honest Money, the United States Note. Now, that's pretty sad, you know, when a doctor, a surgeon, writes a book with a title, Honest Money, and then uses it for a subtitle, the United States Note. Regular listeners understand that the definition not a definition that I've created, but the definition of a note is a promise to pay money. How can money be a promise to pay money? Well, it can't, and it isn't, and it never was. Okay? But nevertheless, you had Dr. Charles Norburn writing that book. You had F.W. Maisel, who wrote The Great American Ripoff. Pastor Sheldon Emery, who wrote Billions for the Bankers, Deaths for the People. He proposed that Congress take over this, this con game. Edward J. Pop, who wrote The Great American Cookie Jar. And Peter Cook. <clears throat> And those are only to name a few. Okay. So economics, particularly central banking, has become a topic of popular concern. So it's to be expected that more and more experts will get to the platform in order to advocate economic reform. That's natural. But like America's proclivity for a quick and easy fix to any problem, the most popular approach to economic reform is guided by the principles which guide allopathic medicine, which treats the symptoms instead of addressing the cause of the disease. As a consequence, the patient must adapt to new symptoms in the pathological process of degeneration toward an untimely death, having been denied a genuine cure aimed at treating the cause of the disease, or in this case, the cause of our many economic afflictions. <clears throat> but we don't want to go there. <clears throat> no, nobody wants to go there. It's just going to take too long. As it turns out, America is suffering from an advanced stage of economic destruction, with each and every step in the process exacerbating the problem, thus requiring additional 
and more exotic treatments. The legal tender debates of the Civil War era are but one example of the legislative treatments to which we have been subjected by the practitioners of what I call allopathic economics. Now, in the time remaining, it was my intention to turn to our fourth and our last commentator on this subject, one who served in Congress from 1863 to 1881 and who published his observations in two volumes entitled 20 Years of Congress. Now, if you do the math, you'll find out 1863 to 1881 isn't 20 years. It's actually 18 years. But on the uh, binding, the edge binding of his book, it's uh, 1861 to 1881. Well, that must have sounded better to him than uh, 18 years in Congress. But it was written by James G. Blaine from my home state of Maine and published in 1884 in two volumes. And as with the previous three commentators that I've quoted from, Edwin Vieira and his book, Pieces of Eight, Edwin W. Kemmerer, who wrote the, word, who wrote the book Money, and A. Barton Hepburn, who wrote Contests for Sound Money, from whom we've already drawn observations regarding this time period, it was my intention in this broadcast to let Congressman Blaine describe America's economic circumstances when the Civil War began, realizing, of course, that his bias was that of a northern sympathizer. Although he was born in Pennsylvania in 1830, he moved to Maine in 1854, where he became an influential newspaper editor, apparently, and he became the leader <clears throat> in the formation of Maine's Republican Party, Keep that in mind, because Abraham Lincoln would win an upcoming presidential election on the Republican ticket. So we can expect in our next broadcast party sympathies to surface from Mr. Blaine, who sought the presidential nomination himself in the year 1876, that's after the Civil War, and again in 1880. In fact, he even won the nomination in 1884, but he lost the election to Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat. And what we're going to do in our next broadcast is we're going to turn to Volume 1 of Mr. Blaine's 20 Years of Congress, and he's going to describe the circumstances from his vantage point as to what the economy was like and what Uncle Sam was up against in terms of funding this war. He said, for example, on page 396, that when the Civil War began, the government of the United States owed a less sum than it owed under the administration of Washington after the funding of the debt of the Revolution. But what he doesn't mention is that that government owed nothing under President Jackson in 1835. But then Jackson was a Democrat. <laughs> so I guess we wouldn't point to that. He points to the fact that the population in 1861 was nine times as large in only 75 years. That's quite a fast growth in America. Anyway, we'll be getting to Mr. Blaine in our next broadcast. Hope you'll find it of interest. Thanks for listening. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you have been listening to Datum Line. Have a good day.
John Stepmiller. Do you begin to smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story. It's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people. And the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich... Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying 
other low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John, I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, in trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumer's house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? 
Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. Ease Off, LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shilajee hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilajee Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilajee as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift 
right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilajit by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Kilad Atzman says the essence of Jewish power is the ability to prevent the discussion of Jewish power. Jewish power requires anybody in politics to understand it and know about it, but never talk about it. My awakening really sums up with the very best evidence, the facts and the truth about race, and the fact that race drives history, and the truth about the Jewish question. The younger you get, the greater the percentage of people who identify as alphabet soup, you know, LGBTQRS. This woman, she's like, oh yeah, I identify as a koala two years ago, and I'm like, what? A koala? What? Maybe if it was quickie koala, that might be cool, but otherwise, you know. How about an inward pass? Have you ever received an inward pass from any of your black friends? Biden invited a drag queen to come for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. It's the Respect for Anal Sex Act. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's just call it like it is. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central.